Welcome to Layer Zero. Layer Zero is a podcast of unscripted conversations with the people that make up the cryptography community. Cryptography is, of course, built by code, but it's composed by people. And each individual member of the cryptography community has their own story to tell. Cypherpunks understood that the code they write impacts the people that use it. And Layer Zero focuses on the people behind the code, because cryptography is people all the way down, and it always has been. Now, you might have noticed a little difference in that intro, and that's because I have not a member of the crypto community, not a member of the Ethereum community, but a member of the OG cryptography community. And I do admit it doesn't make complete sense to say that cryptography is people all the way down because actually cryptography is one of the few things that is strictly math through and through and through. Today on the show, I have on David Chom. If you don't know who that is, you need to do a little homework because we live in an industry that is built upon David Chom's work. He's the founder of DigiCash, one of the early experiments into online cash, but mainly one of the big proponents of privacy at all costs, where not just the data about a message is private, but all of the metadata is private too. And I'd like to read a quote out to help emphasize the importance of who David Chom is and what he's done for this industry. This is Chom's warning to the world in 1985, where he talks about the dangers of user data that is building up around computing systems. He says, computerization is robbing individuals of the ability to monitor and control the ways information about them is used. Already, public and private sector organizations acquire extensive personal information and exchange it amongst themselves. Individuals have no way of knowing if this information is accurate, outdated, or otherwise inappropriate. New and more serious dangers derive from computerized pattern recognition techniques. Even a small group of them tapping into data gathered every day in consumer transactions could secretly conduct mass surveillance, inferring individuals' lifestyles, activities, and associations. The automation of payment and other consumer transactions is expanding these dangers to an unprecedented extent. Projecting this, the vision of these two futures, one built with current technology and one built with decentralized services, David Chom saw that the two approaches appear to hold quite different answers. Large-scale automated transaction systems are imminent, and as the initial choice for their architecture gathers economic and social momentum, it becomes increasingly difficult to reverse. Whichever approach it prevails, it will likely have a profound and enduring impact on our economic freedom, democracy, and our informational rights. David Chom said this in 1985, before we had surveillance capitalism, before we had Web2, and before we have the state of you know, Facebook, Instagram, all this collection of metadata and the reselling to targeted ads and all these other practices that we now deem evil in this world, but we now also have to live with. And so David Trump saw this in 1985, which is one of the reasons why he's such a fantastic character. And he's been dedicating his life to building private cryptographic systems that protect users' data and not just the contents of messages, but all of the data that those messages leak, as in who is the sender, who's the receiver, how big is that message, what time was that message sent, all of these bits of data that create a Sudoku puzzle that's solvable to track who we live in the world of what we now call the metaverse, but was previously called just our online footprint. David Chom, his name is on this shirt. If you aren't watching the podcast, this is the cryptographer shirt that we made with Metafactory. It's the shirt with all the cryptographers that this industry is built on. And so I will stop with my gushing and allow this conversation to progress into one of the core cryptographers that this entire crypto industry is built on right after we get to some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. David Chom, I am so honored to have you on this Layer Zero podcast. Welcome to Bankless. It's just so great to be here with you, David. So... David, uh, there was this episode that we did on Bankless a while ago called Before Bitcoin, and it was just a reading of one of my friend's explorations into the early days of cryptography. And I think that's something that this crypto industry really forgets to pay attention to as to the significance of the shoulders of giants that this industry stands on. And so I really want to go and explore that part of crypto's history, like the pre-currency side of this industry, going back to our roots and going back to the cryptography side of this industry. Are you ready to go down that journey with me? Uh -huh. Sure, sure. Yeah, I think you're right. It's something that most people don't pay enough attention to these days, mm -hmm. although it is a layer sort of below what we're using today mm -hmm. in a sense. But yeah, we can talk about it, sure. Yeah, and I actually want to start at the very beginning. Okay. Cryptography has many different parallels that are less about math, right? Like it's a puzzle, it's a lock that you try and break. I'm wondering when you were growing up as a child, what were like the early 
indications or characteristics that, or <laughs> things that you like to pay attention to well, that later would be obvious about cryptography. Of you, yes. I was, uh, you know, really the truth is that I appreciated the super strength of secrets mm. as a child. Much, Yeah, of course, I was interested in all kinds of security mechanisms and this sort of thing, but I really had a reverence for how powerful it is if you know something and no one else does. Mm. And I thought that maybe there was a way to leverage that to help make the world a better place. And what were some of those first things that captured your attention when you were young? Well, you know, it was a different growing up than a lot of, I think, your listeners have. So mm-hmm. I've had, because, you know, there was the anti-war movement and I was, uh, you know, very much uh, caught up in all that kind of thing and you know, I learned how to program computers by punching the the little squares out of the Hollerith cards with a toothpick. <laughs> and then we give the deck, and then the weekend, the next week, we go to you know back to the science museum, and they'd give us the output from the you know Fortran program, and it would say you know invalid punch in column six failed. You know, and it stopped. <laughs> repeat this process. You know, I was interested in all kinds of things, but I think that really powerful force in my youth was the idea that the world really needed, it was going to go off in the wrong direction and it really needed some help. And the power of secrecy maybe could be leveraged Mm -hmm. uh, for that. So that's kind of, you know, they say people know their life story when they're six or something. Have you ever Mm -hmm. read that? You know, yeah, so something like that. What was the indications that came to you that the world was about to go off the rails, for example? Well, don't forget, you know, you we think that, you know, January 6th was an unprecedented big deal. But when I was growing up, you know, there was uh, the whole Watergate thing. And people mm-hmm. found that, you know, <laughs> equally shocking. And I think there's a common thread running through a lot of that stuff. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, the war in Vietnam was not really that popular, but it was a pretty tragic thing. And, uh I think it polarized and galvanized, but there was, it was a very different era. You know, people were right. extremely excited about the future as well because there was a lot of other vectors besides that, when the war and all. But uh, yeah, the power of uh, technology to influence society, you know, was very much uh, top of mind. Also, with nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. for example, in those days, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, Cold War and all these things. It was. Um, yeah. So as a, someone interested in technology, I could see that this was something that, you know, could be used by the powers that be in their standard way of using these kind of mechanisms and so on to sort of buttress their position and not really innovatively. Or maybe there was a different way through. Yeah. I'm wondering if you thought about technology back then, back in the 60s, 70s, but also its relationship to politics and institutions. I'm wondering, when did you make that connection, or did you? I'm afraid I did. I got in a little bit of trouble here and there for kind of, you know, doing stuff. And I was also like kind of a student of what the government was doing with technology, you know, and I would call people up and pretend to be like, you know, I don't know, much older than I was and find out all kinds of things. And then people started like threatening me because they felt that I was, you know, prying into things that, that I shouldn't and so forth. You know, sometimes I'd call these companies and then they would kind of send me over to some other guy who tried to entrap me. You know, he was some kind of spook that worked there. I mean, scary stuff like mm-hmm. that happened. It was uh, mm-hmm. it was a different time. You know, you could order manuals for all kinds of stuff for free, like how to build an IBM System 360 out of, you know, or how the very sophisticated burglar alarm technology worked or all kinds of stuff. It was a little more available in those days. And uh mm-hmm. So I was interested in all these things, but with an eye towards seeing how they could be deployed in the people's interests as opposed to institutional interests. Mm -hmm. I'd like to jump to your time at Berkeley. What was your major at Berkeley? Oh, well, you know, I was a graduate student there. I had gotten this like Mm -hmm. four-year graduate fellowship, Mm. Regents four-year graduate fellowship. They only give one every two years. And for UCLA, and I transferred to Berkeley after the first quarter. You know, I was like, mm-hmm. I was much happier there. And uh, But most of the people who were doing cryptography, there left. Mm-hmm. You know, so one guy went to work for the government, and another guy went to try to influence government. So, you know, and Merkel had left then and, and so on. But um, it was fantastic being there. It was the beginning of, you know, my advisor w- ran the Berkeley 
Linux, mm-hmm. Unix distribution project. And so my office mate was Eric Schmidt, you know, just the two of us sat in this office looking out at the bell tower and Bill Joy, another founder's son was, you know, kind of around the corner, you know, talked to him a lot. And um, so it was a very exciting place, but there was also this feeling like, you know, the government wants you to work for them, you right. know, and this, this whole, a lot of the funding was from DARPA and, you know, all kinds of government agencies and military organizations and, you know, a lot of big corporation stuff. And then there were a lot of people that didn't really want to participate in that. Mm-hmm. And uh, the DARPA funding, always, you know, they always had the tagline, their posters and stuff, uh, DARPA, a mission-oriented agency. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to be a mission-oriented agency. <laughs> and I really decided just to devote myself to trying to use cryptography to uh, make the world more, let's say, democratic. Mm-hmm. And that was my mission. And I've basically stuck with that over the last 40 years, you know. So there were people who were sort of the, you know, the layer minus one of cryptography, let's say, was public key cryptography, you know, and, and this was a big deal when it was invented. And, uh, you know, so I knew all these people, like Diffie was a buddy of mine. Then he moved he lived right at the border of Berkeley, but then he moved to, to Mountain View. And uh, so Marty Hellman and uh, you know, so Ralph Merkel had invented public key cryptography, but no one would want to publish his, his paper. So it was only published like 10 years later with apologies. Mm-hmm. But Diffie and Hellman, their paper was published at a conference. And then it turns out that some smart summer intern at the British NSA had also invented public key cryptography earlier. Right. And these guys, and now he's running that place. Mm-hmm. So there was the uh, RSA work, you know, as well. And I, I knew those uh, folks, of course, as well. But, you know, this was also an era that's hard to appreciate these days because there was government pressure not to do research in cryptography, hmm. no public research. And in fact, the head of the National Security Agency, the NSA, you know, it's a pretty serious organization, started, in effect, saying that cryptography could be considered born classified. Right. Like nuclear secret. So if you just thought of it yourself, it could still be classified automatically. And so there was this guy started writing letters to the major, you know, IEEE, ACM, the major scientific organization, saying, don't have any conferences or sessions on cryptography, we're going to throw the book at you. Mm. And this was reported in Science Magazine, and you can read about it on my website, chom.com. And so then I thought, well, man, this cannot stand because cryptography is too important a technology to empower individuals. And so I sat in my apartment with my girlfriend, and we stuffed the envelopes for this. We created a, you know, had a conference on cryptography. Mm -hmm. Uh, We did it without using the phone. So we got the label, the addresses on paper from Lynn Edelman. And we, you know, we got, went down to this place where they printed the free press a little like off of Telegraph Avenue, you know, this little print shop where it was like, you know, don't ask, don't tell, just, you know, pay us cash, we'll print stuff. And um, they printed the invitations and, you know, we mailed them out. And uh, so most people that were interested that we knew of in the field came to the conference, about 100 people. And, um, you know, I stood up there because as the general chairman and organizer, I just stood up on the stage and said, okay, you know, thanks for coming. You know, lunch will be at 1230 or whatever, but bathrooms are over there. But now that you paid your whatever it was, like 75 bucks, you're now a member of the International Association for Cryptologic Research, which I secretly founded. And these are the officers. And the next event will be in Italy. And this guy's going to run it. Uh, you know, and um, so there was a handful of people attending in suits, kind of like with their name badges all said, you know, private citizen from, you know, Laurel, Maryland. <laughs> where the NSA is headquartered. And then you want to say that they were working for the NSA, but they were all there in the front row. They were very anxious. And I, I, you could just see them all turn green because it was over. You know, they were trying to stop this research. But at that point, you know, because it was an international organization now, mm-hmm. it's basically backed by the UN and, mm-hmm. you know, they, just do, they couldn't stop it. So they never like put me in jail or anything. So yeah, I said cryptography free, and that's still the major organization by far that does research in cryptography. We have three conferences every year, 
plus a handful of workshops every year and publish the proceeding, you know, the uh, Journal of Cryptology and, and a bunch of, you know, proceedings. And nice. it's the main event. So it really created a community that's, you know, pretty vibrant mm -hmm. still. And of course, all of this is going on during the whole counterculture of the late 60s and 70s, right? And I'm wondering how much of that Count that counterculture zeitgeist of the 70s worked its way into the cryptography community. Because it sounds like you are quite rebellious. But I'm wondering, like, if you were a cryptographer, were you likely also a rebel? Or were you more willing to work inside of state lines? Or was everyone kind of on board with the whole, we are not a part of, we don't work for the government, we work for cryptography? So overall, what would you say is the rebellious nature of the cryptographers back then? Yeah, I don't want to be lumped in with... The rest, sure. it's fair to do so because my, you know, angle, if you will, my vector, my approach, my mission has been, as I mentioned, to use cryptography to protect members of society and mm -hmm. to protect democracy and to allow democracy to flourish. And that entails what is called privacy technology, mm -hmm. basically mixing and blind signatures right. To put it very simply, I refer back maybe to your earlier show you mentioned. So, you know, the rest of the community was not working on that kind of stuff. Mm. They're working on the layer below that, which is, you know, encryption and public key encryption. It's a lot of good work and hard work, but it's all about communication security of the very basic type that you understand when you're a little kid. You know, you have the key, you send the message, you encrypt it, you send the message counterparty has the key, they decrypt it, and and they get it, and the mm -hmm. eavesdropper can't hear it. Can't, I mean, can't understand it, you know, can't decipher it. So that was the thing that, you know, Zimmerman and all these guys focused on that, and the, you know, the government was trying to block this sort of thing, and they didn't want people to use it, and they were trying to wheel out. Since they couldn't do the board classified thing, they were saying, well, now it's, uh, you know, export controls and this and that, it's military equipment, and you can't that was a whole war, crypto wars, unbelievable. Went on for right. a long time, and there were all kinds of advocacy groups and people focused on that. But I steered clear of all that. So I was pretty much the only one working on privacy technology, the, hmm. the layer above that. So hiding sure. who talks to who and when, the social graph, what's called traffic, preventing traffic analysis and allowing payments in such a context not to unwind the protections. And so it was a bit different. And only now with the XX network, I don't want to jump forward, but you know, we have founded this project, XX network, and it has a messenger and it protects uh, privacy and so forth. And now, you know, I have to include the end-to-end -end encryption as well and be involved in that. But that's another mm -hmm. story because none of the messengers today, you know, even though people moved to them thinking they were more private, none of them has quantum-resistant end-to-end encryption, and we do. Mm -hmm. And we announced it very widely, mm -hmm. and no one followed suit. So it's like, I think that that proves basically that that that. It has never really been the issue. Mm. The real issue is traffic is the metadata. Right. Since we used to call it, was military used to call it traffic analysis. So, right. Because it's far more revealing and harder to, um, you know, compromise by lying or, you know, misleading people and so on. Yeah. There's a paper that you wrote on this titled Untraceable Electronic Mail Return Addresses and Digital Signatures. But there was a paper. So, right. But I want to get there. But before there was a paper that you didn't write that was <laughs> monumental in the world of crypto called A New Direction in Cryptography yeah, from was the, Martin Hellman. That was the Diffie Hellman right. paper. Yeah. Yeah. No, I knew those guys very, very well. But that was about, you know, end to end encryption. So right. basically, it's a simple, it's the thing I was mentioning before. Right. Conventional cryptography, right. it, you basically have to drag the key that you make up over to the other guy, person, and then you too can use it to keep the eavesdropper from listening in. Mm -hmm. With the advent of public key cryptography, which I mentioned that, you know, the different people that come up with it, you could publish one of the keys and anyone could use it to, let's say, encrypt a message that you could receive, mm -hmm. that you could uniquely receive. And that made it so you didn't have to physically transport the keys. You still had to make sure you were using the right keys. Right. It's not a complete panacea, but uh, that's right, yes. Yeah, that paper and I think the RSA paper were you know, widely 
uh, heralded and uh, influential mm-hmm. uh, sort of brought cryptography out from the little codes that you did as a kid out into this modern cryptography world. But it was fought by governments right. and, you know, it was a whole war. Right. You sort of think the government lost, but really they won because they were able to delay this dramatically. Mm-hmm. And, and I think then in the end, misdirect people into focusing on that stuff and ignoring the metadata for the longest time until now. Right, certainly, yeah. And this goes to what you were saying where this was the foundation that cryptography is built on, but what you were doing is something a little bit more applied, a little bit more on the data and privacy layer on top of like this basic cryptography. We needed new kinds of cryptography in order to do the privacy stuff. Right. So the mixing paper that you referenced, you know, you could build that just from public key, Mm -hmm, mm. just for the basic, Mm -hmm. but for the payments, which are also needed. You have to have privacy and payments, otherwise it'll ruin the privacy, the unlinkability that you would have in communication, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you'd be linked by your payments. In order to achieve payment privacy, at least in the, those days, it was thought that you needed these an innovation, the blind signatures, which I created. And I created a whole bunch of other kinds of signatures and no one else really did, you know, the undeniable signatures and all this other stuff. So it, it extended the functionality of the primitives with new features that have proved to be of enduring value. And so it wasn't just really building on an earlier layer. It used those things, but it also had fundamental cryptographic insights of its own that enabled its unique protections. There's a quote that I want to read that I'm hoping that you can help elaborate for the listener. This is coming from Chom's warning to the world in 1985, again from this (laughs) Before Bitcoin series, where you say that there are dangers of user data that is building up around computing systems. I'm wondering if you could unpack this quote and tell us what this means. Well, you know, basically it was my realization early on that there were only two ways. You can read in my early papers in the uh, Scientific American and the earlier version of that that was published in the cover of academic journals. It basically always said there's only two ways that technology could go. Mm-hmm. And we see it today. You know, it's one way is where the powers that be can see everything you do, you know, and the other way is where you have the keys to prevent that. And you run the show. You control the use of your own information by possession of your own keys. And those are the two competing scenarios. There's really no halfway middle ground. And, you know, it's really starting to come to a head now because the fundamental difference between China, as we perceive it, you know, in the West here, and our ethos of personal uh, liberty and rights and so on, a liberal democracy, is crystallized in the simple question of, does your messenger allow the government to see who you talk to and when or not? Mm-hmm. That's basically what it comes down to. WeChat, people in China know that WeChat you know, can see everything they do, and that information is available to the government. So it's a kind of panopticon, you know, it's a, it has a chilling effect on society, but that's the way they want to do it. And what I said in uh, 2018 was that the XX Network Project was going to, and the XX Messenger was going to be a WeChat with privacy built in. Mm-hmm. And that's what we've done now. And that's the fundamental Different. So, you know, you hear a lot about CBDC. Is that something you talk about? Certainly, totally. Yeah. Well, you know, there's only two kinds of CBDC. There's the kind with privacy and the kind without. And, you know, when the European Central Bank had a whole big comment on uh, CBDC, you know, the majority of the comments were about privacy uh, that people wanted. it. And so it's not easy to get in a CBDC. But, you know, if we do a CBDC that is fully surveillance capable, it doesn't give the actual privacy keys to the users or allow them to create them, then, um, you know, we're not going to have the moral high ground over China. I mean, this, people are trying to precipitate some kind of new Cold War or something. I'm not a big fan of that, but it would seem that the basis of it is that if it's not a free society and they're spying on people and, you know, the state has too much power in that really comes down to, can we chat, see who you talk to or not? Uh, what kind of CBDC are we going to build? And what kind of messages are we going to have? The ones that actually let you protect that? Or is it going to be like, trust us, you know? Oh, the government has the keys because we might need to check on you, you know, and all this. You know, that's basically the fork in the road. And I wrote about that and saw that very early on uh, in no uncertain terms. And it remains 
the central issue because it's so fundamental. Mm-hmm. There's no way to protect your own information unless you have the keys to it. You know, it's you just can't trust other people with your keys because mm-hmm. you don't know if they leak what they leak and what they do. And so it's as simple as that. This is one of the immaculate parts of your story, I think, is that in 1985, you talked about this fork in the road where one would lead to a panopticon and one would lead to user privacy. And And it seems to have gotten true. Yes, certainly. And it seems to only get more and more and more true as our technology (laughs) these days becomes more and more powerful. Yeah, people are realizing it. Now the surveys Mm -hmm. show, you know, we hear a lot about Web3. Right. But look at the, the surveys. They show international and U.S. surveys. The major, you know, giant thousands of people surveyed show that three quarters of people find privacy of the Internet, so Web 2, as the biggest problem, the one thing they really don't like. Mm-hmm. It's also the top three things they don't like, mm. you know, and are different, different names, you know. So it's like the world has come around to the, you know, so if you're going to build Web 3, you better build something that people want which is something that allows them to protect their own information. Mm-hmm. It's not good enough that you say you're going to protect it or that, you know, there's a presumption that you will. That's, that's just not going to cut it these days. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the hope for me for Web3. And that's basically we chat with privacy inside. That's the thin end of the wedge. And then from there, you can build out a more privacy platform. And then, you know, there's other things that you want to decentralize, of course. And I'm not trying to diminish the significance of, you know, the new kind of models and paradigms that have emerged for the crypto and blockchain space. I mean, there's a lot of interesting new stuff, Mm -hmm. but that's the fundamental divide. Yeah, still. Can you take us back to David Traum in 1985 and tell us what made it so obvious that there was this massive fork in the road? Like, what did you see that no one else saw back in 1985? I saw it in the late 70s. Late 70s? 79, yeah, was the first. I published the mixing article, which now there's Mm -hmm. 65,000 references to in technical papers. I don't know what that translates into in terms of likes, (laughs) but I think it's a lot. And so, because it's not... You know, they had to say something about it, I guess. So I was sitting in the hot tub in Berkeley with my professor. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, you know, we were wearing, you know, swim trunks or whatever. It was like, like a, you know, but, you know, it was like he had this hot tub in his backyard. He said, come on over, you know, our house, you know, we'll talk, you know, about your research. And, you know, that's the way it was. You know, it's not like now, you know, where people are afraid to, you know, go to a professor's house and hang out. And uh, so he had like the redwood trees in his backyard, you know, you know, sitting there and looking up at the redwood trees and try to figure out, well, if we really need to solve the privacy problem, how can we work on that? Well, let's see, what would be the simplest kind of basic problem that you could start with, you know, the kind of toy problem to work on it. You know, that's the way often you sort of get, you know, make progress in science. And so, you know, I said, well, voting, you know, we'll work on voting. And so I came up with Mixnets to solve voting. And uh, it's it's still in that mixed paper. There's a couple paragraphs on the voting, but it's a little bit broader than that. You know, then I read this article, this guy named Paul Barron at the Rand Institute, you know, like these uh, kind of government-sponsored think tank that, you know, was involved in all kinds of spooky stuff. You know, they were talking about traffic analysis and all this. And I'm like, "Mm, this is bad news. So yeah, I was like doubly motivated to work on it in those days. So, you know, I think what gave me the insight that, you know, circle back to your question is, is that I knew that you could solve it. Mm. I think that it's still the case. A lot of people think, oh, you know, I can't, I I know they're spying on me. They're, They're spamming me with fake news. They're this and that. They're exploiting my data for making money off it. But, you know, what can I do? I need to be on this or that platform to, you know, I, you know, this, you know, there's nowhere else to go, really. You can't really vote with your feet. I mean, some of the platforms that have held themselves out, like I said, to provide privacy, I now really question. I don't want to, you know, malign them, but I challenge you to find any messenger besides the, ex- you know, the Elixir that actually uses quantum-resistant security on the end-to-end encryption. Mm-hmm. So they've always been saying, use, you know, end-to-end encryption. That's the be-all. That's why you should move to our... But it's fake because they're not upgrading it. And the U.S. government has, you know, there's a presidential directive. All government has to use quantum-resistant VPN and everything because otherwise, you know, the point is, you know, for privacy, if, you know, you may think 
quantum resistance has some, has some tinfoil hat connection. But it, actually, for privacy, it's like extremely conservative and solid because it's not questioned that quantum computers will ultimately be able to break these codes that are used to, you know, because people use public key to set up the communications, quantum computers can break it, mm -hmm. ironically. So, you know, Ed Snowden told us that the government was involved in what they called the full take. Mm -hmm. They capture everything and they save it. They've always been doing that. We knew that back in the day. The NSA said, oh, send us your used magnetic tapes with all those phone records on them. You know, we'll give you brand new tapes in exchange. And the phone company said, oh, that's, that's great. You know, it's like, yeah, they have these huge facilities, so you could, you know, look them up online. It's frightening. Like store all this stuff, and they're just waiting, or maybe they already have quantum computers or whatever. When they're interested enough, they'll be able to look into that data retroactively. And so, governments have taken the affirmative to stop this possibility, and I think that the public should as well. But the people that we're trusting with to help us mm -hmm. seem to be asleep at the switch. And that's leaving the whole metadata issue out. There is no messenger out there besides Elixir that's protecting your metadata. Mm -hmm. So they all just keep talking about how they have strong end-to-end encryption, but it's not that strong anymore. Sure. You know, it's it's public key based, which means it can be broken by a quantum computer. So, I mean, roughly speaking, you know, right. it's based on you know earlier government standardized public key systems, which are. Um, you know, the more I looked into it, okay, then I said, well, great, I've got this communication system that can solve the metadata problem, that can solve, keep confidential who you talk to and when, but then I have to find a way to do payments mm. over that system that doesn't undo the privacy, and I found that, and then the third and final piece with the blind signatures was that the blind signatures could actually be generalized into what I call the credential mechanism, that which you might think of as a kind of zero knowledge minimum disclosure proofs or something like that, but it's a little different than that. That uh, allows you to basically, you know, you can keep the full database of information about yourself that uh, normally under the current paradigm would be maintained piecemeal by different organizations, you know, government agencies and companies and so on. And they could potentially link all your records together by your identity. Right? You could maintain all that data yourself. They wouldn't have it because you would deal with each of them under a different digital pseudonym, a different public key. And then if they wanted to know something about you, they could ask you. And then you could answer if you chose to in whatever way you wanted. But then you could prove that your answer was correct with like zero knowledge, minimum disclosure. This right. was the, the cryptographic stuff. So basically you could organize society that way. Only you would know who you talk to, when you could do payments privately, and the database of information about yourself would be your exclusive property. But I argued in those papers in the mid-80s that the data that organizations would get would actually be better and more useful to them. Because mm -hmm. right now they ask you to voluntarily tell them all this stuff and you could lie to them and so on. And then they have to sift through all this. And whereas this way, you know, you just answer the exact question that they want to know. Are, are you allowed to be here in this event? You know, do you have a driver's license? You pay your car insurance? Are you at least 18 years old? You know, whatever. And you just say, yes, I am qualified. And that's it. They don't need to know all the supporting information. And why do they need it? It doesn't really help them. And then, so it's a better way to do it. And I showed how to do that in the Scientific American article achieving electronic privacy and its more technical antecedents. It's, so but that so once I realized that you could do all three parts, just all you really need, that's when I, you know, that caused me to double down on my commitment to to try to push right. this all forward. But the public awareness wasn't really there, of course. Right. You know, back in the day, you talk about privacy, it sounds like a very kind of wimpy, you know, issue or some kind of thing. But now, you know, uh, there's a massive recognition that this is the whole game, I think. And that's what I've always realized. You said the phrase minimum disclosure. I'm wondering if you could just unpack and elaborate on what that means and how you might um, organize that around it as a principle. Well, it's a, you know, it's a different kettle of fish. Mm -hmm. So I was at an event in Marseille uh, at a university called Lumini. It was a little mansion and there were these ladies there in cook outfits making this giant kettle of uh, Marseille fish soup 
to celebrate the end of our one-week conference on randomness. But at that conference, I presented a model that uh, a technique basically permuted the circuit diagrams, and you can still see it on my website and my publications, strom.com, that with Cropot and Brassard, I believe, that included both models, both the, what's called zero knowledge mm -hmm. and what's called minimum disclosure. And the zero knowledge people just hated us and they kept trying to say, oh, you didn't really do it. And, you know, suppressing our papers and the references. It was so painful and, you know, dishonest in my view. But in any case, we cut a deal with them that they would call the one model minimum disclosure and they would call the model that they created zero knowledge. So I showed you could do both. Mm. One construction that could do either mix and match them. And then also, if you look on my website, the, the Spy Master's Double Agent, that showed how you can combine all the models and get the best of both worlds. So that's why. So it was a weird political thing that happened in science. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's called minimum disclosure. You know, it just depends on whether you want the secrets to be protected unconditionally. In other words, against a quantum computer or an infinite computing power or whether you're willing to allow the secrets to be protected by some problem that you assume is hard to solve. Mm. And so, of course, in my early career, I was all about protecting secrets unconditionally because I argued that, you know, how could an individual know what kind of computing power, you know, governments would have or in the future and so on. But it turns out that in voting, what you really want to be sure of is that the outcome is correct. And so what we, you know, what we proved is you can't have it both ways. Mm. You know, you have the secrecy of the secrets and the correctness of the outcome. And one of them can be unconditional and at best forces the other one to be based on a computational assumption, assuming a certain kind of, you know, problem can't be solved. And so for voting, you want to do it the other way. And uh, can I just interject something about voting? I don't want to, sure. uh, I just want to, mention this because it's another thing a lot of people don't realize and it's very interesting to me because we just saw that we just got this paper except in the last couple of weeks so there's this long-standing issue with voting technology you want to vote online you know you're not in a booth so someone could bribe you or coerce you like threaten you and there's really you know you could live stream your voting act so there has not been a satisfactory solution to that in the literature if you look at my website you see i did a lot to try to create a voting technology community as well, the books that I published and stuff. So it turns out that we finally found a way to do it. And uh, it's called votexx.org. You can, you can look, you can see it. But basically, it just says, it's kind of like quantum mechanics. It's an interesting result. I, don't wanna, I won't go into it here, but it's quite practical. And we built the software for it. And we're going to let a lot of people help us. And some people are volunteered to incentivize that process. And so we're going to try to make it uh, really usable. But, but the basic uh, algorithms are running. So we proved it with the strongest type of proofs, which is the so-called universal composability framework proof. So it's like really strong, but basically it renders voting un improperly influenceable. You can't coerce or, or bribe uh, voters really effectively. And that's necessary for if you want democracy to flourish, because, you know, I think you need a little more voting and a little more unstruck, you know, sample voting. If you can read about it on my website, you know, that's, that's the way I think it really needs to be done because that scales with the complexity of society, you know. Right. And I've got some new results coming out, which, you know, obviates a lot of these theorems like Arrow's theorem and stuff like that, you know, big problems with social choice theory. So sample voting is a really, really nice, but it means that people aren't always voting in at the same time. So you can't really go to booths. You got to do it. You got to be able to do it. That's what everyone realized. You got democracy to flourish. You got to be able, you can't have the booths because booths, sometimes they spy on you. People, you know, harass you. You can't get there, all this stuff. And, you know, and here, you know, like in LA, uh, you know, there's a lot of polling places that never open every election, handful of them, right. you know, because that locks out a certain group of votes. Mm -hmm. So in any event, we solved that uh, recently in the vote XX and, uh, it's a subtle thing, but it was the final sort of missing link mm -hmm. to allow democracy to flourish because it's not enough just to be able to vote securely online. You have to stop this improper influence. And so it's proven elusive, but now we got it. Certainly. We nailed it. Certainly.
The other thing I'd like to define is the traffic problem. We talked about that a number of times. Could you just talk about traffic analysis sure. and just the nuances that that brings to the table when it comes to like uh, privacy? Yeah. Well, there's a. Thanks for asking. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a, you know the basic traffic analysis. That's what the military used to call it. And just filling a little bit to so your listeners to get the sense of this because one of the really crazy things about trying to find out who talks to whom and when is that it's always been legal for any government agency to ask for that information. So there was something called a mail cover. You know, any agency of the U.S. government could fill out a form and get, make your postman write down every single address you send to and every single address that sends to you and the weight of each envelope, but not open them. Hmm. Open them, that's different. That requires, you know, a court order. And the same thing with the phone company, you know, like, oh, sure, you know, we can tell you who calls and who you call and so on. And I think that, you know, where mobile phones are sort of seems to fall into that category too, right? And so, you know, most people are unaware of this. And they think that that information is somehow protected. And so when a, when a, when a company says, oh, we don't, you know, we don't respond to, you know, unless they have a subpoena, we're not going to tell them, you know. But the traffic data they give, look at the, you know, Apple said, oh, we're not going to give the keys to open this phone, you know, the password for that phone famously. But they gave tons of information about all the transactions that were done with that phone. Mm-hmm. You can read it. It's in the court records. It was known, you know. it's This is the double thing that I was referring to, right, that people say, oh, you know, it's like, don't look behind the curtain. Don't look at that, you know, the man behind the curtain. You know, you've got strong end-to-end encryption here. That's, look at the Zuckerberg, you know, uh, statements on privacy that he's made, several really long statements even. And it's all about this. Well, you know, it's strong end-to-end encryption. We're going to move to that. But don't worry about the traffic data. We'll take care of that. We may need that to stop spam, you know, something like that. So it's always been... Something that's never really discussed in a clear, open manner. But, yeah, but basically, uh, you know, the social graph, who your friends are, and when you talk to them and so on, is so revealing. Like I said earlier, you can't lie uh, about that, really. You can't mislead, you know. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, when I was at Berkeley... I went over to the, you know, the Doe Library, the main library, and they had the congressional record on the stacks, you know, in the basement there. And um, you could read the hearings where, I don't know if you recall, but during that period, the CIA was compelled to reveal their methods in one example of their covert, you know, whatever they call it, clandestine methods. And the Congress was going to get to choose which instance they would look into. And that wouldn't really set them back too much, but it would give the Congress this oversight. And so they chose the coup in Chile. And so that you could read the, the sworn testimony of the CIA about how they did it. Mm. How did they go in there and just take it over and get, you know, switch the government there? And how did they do it? Traffic analysis. Mm. They just put software in the phone exchange at the presidential whatever, you know, palace or whatever it was facility, because it was an American-made phone exchange probably, right? But they just put some like malware in there that would every night call Washington, D.C. to some random number and upload all the traffic data, which phone called which phone at what time and how long they spoke. And then the CIA, it's also public. They, they, it was, they, they paid all these universities to develop sophisticated analysis of data like that. You know, it wasn't, I don't know exactly. Maybe, I think it was an advance so that they had this capability, social graphs, and they could. So basically, you could look and see, oh, who called who just before this event and then who called who after it and so on. They knew exactly who was running the country, and they just went in there and uh, you know, surgically took it over. No big deal. Traffic analysis. That's documented. I want to pause and just like double down on this like a letter metaphor really quick where we have this envelope that has a packet of data inside of it, just a letter, for example. And end-to-end encryption assures that that envelope is going to stay closed and it's going to protect the data that's inside of that message. Right. But what it doesn't do is 
all the rest of the data that's outside of the envelope, which is who it's coming from, where it's going, the time that it's going, and then what you said also, like how much of a payload that data is, like how much is there a little bit of data or a lot of data. And what you're saying is that, well, sure, encryption, it hides the actual message, but when you have so much of the metadata, the peripheral data, and you have a, you collect all of that, it's a little bit like a Sudoku puzzle. You can kind of fill in the blanks just by kind of figuring it out. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You can link it to all kinds of other databases, mm -hmm. like this data about where your phone is at all times. That's like, mm -hmm. you can buy that for almost nothing from these companies that just capture it. You know, any other data you have, you can start to correlate and link in. And um, so let me mention something else real briefly. I just presented this at a conference in Berlin uh, a couple of days ago for the first time, but let me just point out to you that if you are listening, you know, maybe some messenger service, let's just say, is not going to give you the traffic data because they know it because they route all the messages, right? Mm -hmm. You just listen near their location because you have the full take, right? So, you, or whatever, you just tap the internet near their location and you just notice all that the IP addresses coming in and going out. Well, it doesn't take long to use statistical techniques to find out how many, let's say, server processes they are running, how many threads, how many cores and threads are running in there. And because you, you'll start to see that certain IP addresses always end up talking to other ones. Mm. So then assuming that the processing is first in, first out, which of course it is, all of a sudden, now you can see the full interconnection, which IP addresses are talking to which IP addresses, and then then you can link that with the phone number stuff and you've got it all. You don't have to, mm. you know, get the cooperation of the messenger services. So that's a programming project for undergraduates, in my opinion. That's right. not like, you know, that's not really that hard to do. Mm -hmm. So this traffic data is not well protected, right. not under law and not in practice. The only really way is with mixing. Is this what supports this like surveillance capitalism that we have today where, you know, I get targeted ads based off of certain data that I like exhaust into the internet? Is this that same problem that we're talking about? It's tightly coupled. I mean, yeah, there, you know, in a lot of cases, you know, web two, you have no real choice. You sign up naively for this service and you start mm -hmm. exposing a lot of data to it. They have a lot of data internally. They don't need to do traffic analysis. Right. I mean, they can just link all kinds of things. They have the data and that's, I think, you know, a part of it. But yes, those surprising <laughs> little ads you get or whatever, these funny things. Yeah, that's when one service links to another mm -hmm. just based on uh, your IP address, for example. Yeah, so it's extremely um, porous and in, in oh, it's maybe the wrong analogy. Mm -hmm. It's easily interlinked mm -hmm. based on, like just to, riffing on what I was saying about breaking a messenger's uh, uh, traffic data, but there's a lot of different sources of data and it's not hard to link them all together because they're all based in effect on uh, your identity. Right. It could be your IP address, you know, your name, your Google, you know, your location. There's a lot of different clues and you can just link it all together. That's why, like you said, in the mid eighties, I said, look, we got to, the only way so that you can control your own information is just to make sure that you talk to everyone under a different pseudonym and you talk over a mixed network. Mm -hmm. So there is no metadata linking. No one knows your IP address. Right? That's how people were surprised to see how much Bitcoin they, you know, what they're doing with Bitcoin, right? Because right? the IP address. You know, no one sees your IP address because you, you speak over a mixed network and use a different pseudonym. So yes, you can authenticate yourself as the owner of that account or whatever. And you can prove that your answers are correct with minimum disclosure, as we discussed, right? Mm -hmm. But you don't have to allow those entities that you talk to to know enough about you to link whatever it is they're collecting about, each one is collected about you, to the stuff that the other ones have collected. Mm -hmm. That's precluded mm -hmm. by that technique. You divide them up. You know, you partition them. You build in, you know, firewalls between them because you right. have different identities with each one. That's the only way. Right. I think the metaphor in the crypto world is that it would be like if you made a new transaction with a brand new wallet every single time. Well, no, that but that's not going to do it. But yes, but with a different IP address. With a different IP. Well, yes, right. The, 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 print, the principle <laughs> The only way there, to get right? that different IP address is to use a mixed network right. to appear somewhere else in the world. So mm -hmm. basically, you're going to have mixing and you're going to have digital pseudonyms and you have to have a way 
to prove stuff between them if you want to benefit from your, you know, you can do everything totally out of the card, and, but if you want to be able to say, well, look, I paid my taxes, I, right. you know, I've got this much money in the bank, I paid my insurance, I got this advanced degree or whatever it is, this passport, this, you know, I'm at this age or whatever, then you need to have a credential mechanism that allows you to approve things about the statements that each individual organization gives you under the respective pseudonym that you uniquely use with them. I want to go back to this fork in the road comment. And there's another quote that I want to read that I thought was really, really powerful. This is from an article that says, projecting the vision of the two futures, one built with the current technology and one built with decentralized services, David saw that their two approaches appear to hold quite different answers. Large-scale automated transaction systems are imminent, and as the initial choice for their architecture gathers economic and social momentum, it becomes increasingly difficult to reverse. Whichever approach prevails, it will likely have a profound and enduring impact on economic freedom, democracy, and our informational rights. Now, sadly, I already kind of know, David, which path we went down. It's kind of the one that we give away all of our privacy. But I'm wondering, like, if we go back to 1985 and then zoom forward to where we are today, is it as bad as you worried about? Is it not as bad? Currently, the state of like user sovereignty and user data today, is it as bad as you thought it could get? Is it worse? Is it better? Just like, how bad is it? And like, what were your thoughts on where we are today? Well, it's pretty bad <laughs> currently. It's much worse than it seems to be because, you know, as they say, they keep it all hid. You know, if you had a lot massive data, you're not going to announce it. And there's a lot of progress in um, machine learning and so on that's unreported. And that, you know, this people economically benefit enormously from this data capture, as you know, mm-hmm. and they're, you know, going ahead very aggressively trying to, you know, so it's worse than you think. Right. However, in my own defense, I want to say that if you go back and read those, you know, those statements, what I actually, let's say, prophesized was not so much an inevitability. I mean, I was trying to, you know, scare people, say, you know, if you get really bad, hard to dig your way out of. But what I prophesized was that it would be kind of a Hegelian, you know, thing. You know, the the people would get all riled up and push back and win some stuff back. It would become a bit of a struggle. But make no mistake, you cannot win a local war. Mm. You know, it's one thing. All that data is leakable or not. You're either hosed or you're not. You can't have it halfway. You know, it's not like, well, it's pretty much okay because in this part it's, you know, okay. But what I will say also, though, to qualify that briefly, and I think, and importantly, is that, and this is an insight that I've had subsequent to those publications, you know, I mean, because of the Internet of Things, Mm -hmm. let's say, and all the cameras that people seem to have put up with and all this existing data that's out there, right? There are certain things that are pretty much hopeless and probably not worth fighting about. And there's certain, you know, when you're walking down the street, you know, you're going to wear a bag over your head or what, you know, it's kind of hard to really win in that domain. So what I argue now is that what is strictly needed for democracy to prevail is that individuals must have a protected sphere where they are certain that they are free to discuss uh, you know, political and other matters and pay for information and be paid for information with their, let's say, friends and family and their people that they want to communicate with. You must have that protected sphere, otherwise you cannot have democracy. It's a necessary condition, and now with the stuff we know about voting and so on, it's actually sufficient to have democracy, and then that democracy can later, you know, say, take the cameras down and do this. But you've got to get over the idea that the government needs to see everything you do. Mm. You have to give people a protected sphere, or there is no possibility that they can really be participants in a democracy. So, you know, if you want to say that we're different from China, then you either have to provide the protected sphere wholeheartedly, you know, uh, no no, no secret little holdbacks, or just give it up Mm -hmm. and say, okay, you know, we're just going to find everybody just like they do, and there's no real difference. 
I think that's a very pragmatic approach. So it's very optimistic because the XX network has those capabilities already. Mm -hmm. We have a way to have those protected spheres. You know, a thing that just to drive it home for a minute, you know, colorful thing is, you know, I don't know how many of your listeners realize that coffee was criminalized both in England and also in the Middle East for the longest time by rulers who felt that if people got together in coffee houses, who knows what they would be talking about? Look it up. It's startling. Revolutionary thought. Yeah, it's just, it's really it's, it's quite surprising. So yeah, for like 500 years, there's a very, so I think it makes the point you know, there was this bookstore in San Francisco, I think it's defunct now, but it was called A Clean, Well-Lighted Place for Books. I always liked the name of it. If you need a protected sphere, a place where you can be you, where you can have an actual political consciousness and development and discuss issues and actually meaningfully participate in governance. Absent that, there's no democracy, and, and it's not much to ask for. And, you know, if you try to criminalize that claiming, you know, some kind of, you know, abuse of this or that. I mean, you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater, you know? Yeah, sure, there might be some trade-offs, and I don't want to get into all this kind of, you know, guns don't kill people, it's the people, whatever. But no, you want democracy, that is a necessary condition. Mm -hmm. So just understand that and get over it. And, you know, like the thing is that, you know, the NSA said, oh, we need to spy on everybody, and they had all these programs, spent billions and billions of dollars. They never caught anybody. And if you read the reports on that, it's just it's just ridiculous. They, you know, they had all this surveillance, so they never really found any, you know. So it's like, okay, you know, if there are a few people that are really doing evil, then then follow them around, you know. Use the old, you don't need to use the new techniques to stop that. It isn't at that scale. Mm-hmm. So there's really no rationalization for it. And then if you take it to the next level, I mean, those countries that try to suppress this will lose out, in my view, in the medium term, because uh, there's so much uh, economic opportunity in creating, let's say, a level playing field for financial transactions and services globally. We're paying basically $3 trillion annually in fees for financial services. It depends on your school of economics, but that's at a huge cost to society. And one thing that blockchain has done is shown that you don't actually need that. Mm. You can do financial service. I mean, two trillion of that is payments. You can do it without this whole huge uh, overhead. And so if you unleash this, there's a lot of economic opportunity there. And if those governments that don't have a way to allow people to pay their taxes meaningfully in that context will suffer, they'll either try to stop it and that'll be horrible for them or they won't get the revenue and that could be a big problem. And so those kind of techniques that I mentioned, the credential mechanism, allow you to say, okay, I'm proving that I'm paying the correct taxes without right. telling you anything about what I'm doing. Right. And uh, that's way better for, just like I was saying for, you know, for companies, that's way better because now they actually have a proof. You know, you send in taxes, who knows? It's really true, whatever, you know, everyone's right. fudging on it. Depends on the country, right? In Brazil, it's like 50% fudging. I think that's what I heard when I was there. So it's... Mm-hmm. You basically prove that you're paying the right amount, and that's it. Done. Mm-hmm. That's far better strategy for uh, liberal democracy than uh, trying to say, "Oh no, no, we can't let you have your, pro- you know, your protected sphere uh, because it's just too dangerous uh, to society." You know, that's it's really a doomed uh, mm-hmm. take. So, you know, we are at a critical juncture. Certainly, I'd like to actually zoom back in time really quick because there's this line that stuck out to me while I was doing some of my homework from one of your head teachers, I believe at Berkeley. And it was while you were working oh, yeah. on your mixed networks. Yeah. And the, uh, yeah. your head teacher said... Manuel uh, Blum. Manuel Blum yeah. was the head of the department. Mm-hmm. He's a theoretical computer scientist. You know, I took his graduate theory seminar mm-hmm. and I'm the only one who got an A-plus in it <laughs> because I proved a more general result in half a page all his, you know, star students like Macaulay mm-hmm. and so on, they didn't do anywhere near as well as it. But I wasn't a theory student. Right, right. But yeah, Manny was quite a, you know, a presence in the department. Uh-huh. And again, this is going, I believe, with uh, mixed networks, which is th- the concept of like decentralization, but, you know, all the way back then. And he said, don't work on this 
because you can never tell the effects of a new idea on right. society. That's right. What did you think when your professor told you this? You know, well, this was about my dissertation topic, which was, mm -hmm. you'll see it on my website, is actually blockchain. <laughs> it was actually, uh, uh, it was called a, you know, Computer Systems Established, Maintained, and Trusted by uh, Mutually Suspicious Parties. It was a way to do a consensus, you know, with cryptography, with a bunch of nodes, and they could add nodes and take them out and so on. This was, you know, aimed at providing multi-party computation, which later I found a theoretical way to solve, and that's... You can also read about that on my website, the uh, Spymaster's double agent problem that I mentioned earlier. But yeah, so it's in the acknowledgments of my dissertation. Mm -hmm. I thanked Manuel Blum for, you know, trying to tell me that you could never anticipate the effect of technologies on society. This is a common thing that's believed, you know, because it's too hard to anticipate, you know, so I should not work on things that I thought would make the world better because who knows, they might make it worse. Right. But I dedicated it to him because I said it was the rejection of that principle that, you know, was the motivation for doing this dissertation. Because I think that privacy technology is different from other technologies in that respect. The only known use is really to allow, you know, liberal democracy to flourish. It's really only about empowering people. You don't need anything fancy to allow like what I call the monolithic model of security where, you know, it's all controlled by the government and everything's hierarchical uh, and so So there's no real evil use for privacy technology in my view. It's our main way through. It's the way to make information technology create a new world that we would like to live in as opposed to a new world that we really will not like to live in. When I was running the DigiCash company in Amsterdam, you know, we had eCash was used, mm -hmm. you know, around the world. It was in Deutsche Bank issued it in, in Deutschmarks, and we had it in dollars and Australian dollars, and Nemura was using it and everything. But this guy I knew in elementary school wrote to me, and he said, you know, he was a really smart guy, and he, he wrote to me, and he said, David, you know, I'm a drug addict, and I'm in prison, and... You're my main chance, you know. <laughs> it, always, it always kind of resonated with me. That's like it's our main chance. It's the main way through. Mm -hmm. This is it. If you want liberal mm -hmm. democracy to flourish, mm -hmm. then uh, this is the only way, and it is the way. And we've, we've proven it because we've built the stuff. It works. So, yeah. David Chom, privacy is the way to have a flourishing liberal Democracy is definitely one of the subtexts that we talk about on this Bankless podcast, so you could not have said it better myself. If you had a message for the cryptocurrency industry, not the cryptography industry, what would it be? What would you say to the collective cryptocurrency industry? Well, I mean, it's been a blast. It's been so, you know, <laughs> what has been achieved is so uh, fantastic because it you've created so much outside of the... The control of government, it's caused a lot of heads to turn and possibilities to be opened up. And it's a very exciting community. And um, I'm thrilled that I, you know, could have been doing some of the early work that led to this. Mm -hmm. And But uh, yeah, I think it's also, don't forget about the kind of future we're trying to build here. Also, that would be, I guess, <laughs> based on, you know, but I mean, it's not front and center. You know, it's not mm -hmm. everyone's uh, focus. It is mine. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not naive enough to think that, you know, one can force this through. I mean, you have to find sort of a way to incentivize everyone and then sort of spread the word and create a, a situation where everyone's pulling together to make it happen. But I guess... Right now, we have the wind at our back because the vast majority of the public realizes this is what's needed. Mm -hmm. It's quite different from just even a few years ago. It's really, it's a profound opportunity at this moment. And yeah, so I hope we can seize it. Yeah, trying to get the crypto world to zoom out and focus on the long term sometimes only works in the bear markets and not, not the bull markets. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's an optimistic way to look at the current situation. <laughs> yeah, people can yeah, work on stuff now because, yeah, when things are really, yeah, I, I hear you. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Yeah, this is mm -hmm. the time certainly to do it. And, you know, I'm certainly trying to double down and, and, and move this all forward. And, um, yeah, I'm excited. I mean, yeah, it's a little bit unfortunate that we can't all, like, you know, meet and try. Although it's kind of wearing me out, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Tell me. You know, it's like, you know, but uh, I believe it's certain that we're going to pull through this. 
And I think you're right. We will probably come out way more medium-term focused than we were when we went in. Mm -hmm. And so that's a huge opportunity right there. Yeah. Certainly. The other fantastic thing I really enjoy about this industry is that the cryptocurrency industry stands on top of the cryptography industry. But the cryptography industry, it was built in the 60s and yeah. thrived in the 70s and then came alive in the 80s. And that is not that long ago. And so it's an honor, David, to be able to talk to you and, and host you on this podcast because we stand on top of the shoulders of giants and you are one of those giants that the entire industry stands upon. So just thank you so much for everything you've done for the world of data, privacy, cryptography, and allowing us to have this flourishing ecosystem to play fun games in. Well, I, you know, thanks for recognizing it, uh, David. And I have to say, watch this space, mm -hmm. as they say. You know, I've got some new stuff, which I'm very, very excited about. Some of it you can see on my website. Some of it's not up yet. But uh, even though we solved the basic problems and our mm -hmm. current stuff is really enough, to move things forward. There's some interesting new developments that I'm also super excited about. And I uh, urge you to, to your listeners to keep their ears open for some new stuff coming out soon. It's uh, pretty, pretty exciting stuff. Certainly. We will put all of the links to chom.com in the show notes and also everything about links out to XX Network as well. Awesome. This was so great. Awesome. Thank you so much. Likewise. Thank you, David. Super pleasure. Bye.